Hello, and welcome to the Mental Perk Podcast, where we focus on real people, real issues, and real talk. I'm Carla Hutcherson, a licensed professional counselor. And I'm Brandy Mock, entrepreneur, author, and community leader. We are here to talk about all things mental health, whether it's daily stress, academic and work pressures, managing a diagnosis, or suicidal and self-harm behaviors. We want this to be a space of non-judgment, honest talk, and destigmatizing mental health issues. Most of all, we want to provide you the support and encouragement you need to win your everyday battles. Welcome back to Mental Perk. Today's guest is Greg Wilkerson. Greg is a native Texas, North Texan. He was born in Arlington, Texas, and graduated high school in Venus, Texas. As a young man, he served as a volunteer firefighter for the cities of Venus Mansfield. Prior to entering the law enforcement career, he served as a prison guard in the Correction Corporation of America at Venus Unit in Johnson County. He's an experienced law enforcement veteran and administrator that proudly served agencies in North Texas area for many years. He retired in Denton County Water District Police Department as Director of Public Safety in December of 2021 after serving 30 years in Richardson, Little Elm, and Corinth, and in Denton County Water District Police Department. Welcome so much, Greg, for coming on today. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So tell us a little bit about Greg, how it all started, your life growing up, and what got you to where you are today? I recently uh, shared a story with uh, one of my colleagues. I I grew up in Arlington, Texas, born there. Uh, Growing up as a a young child, my first memories about law enforcement was my neighbor that lived across the street. Uh, His name was John Hethcox, and he was a state trooper. And early days five, six years old, remember waiting out on the front steps with my mom, we're waiting on dad to get home, John would drive home in his squad car, and uh, I dubbed a nickname for him, John Didu, because <laughs> he turned on the siren, and this siren would wail for John me every day. <laughs> I couldn't pronounce Hefcox back in the day, so. <laughs> but uh, he always made time for me, and that, that, that memory stuck with me, and, and fast forward uh, a few years before I retired uh, with the uh, Elmridge police department I got to know a county judge that uh, was a former state trooper and I happened to ask him one day I said where did you work and he said Hurst Euless Bedford area and I said you don't know a guy by the name of John Hefcox do you and he said yes come to find out he was still alive um, and had served a full career with the Department of Public Safety they worked together for a number of years and uh, he traded numbers with me and I actually it came full circle so I, wow. you know, I got to got to meet him after all these years, he still lives at the same house in Arlington. Wow. Uh, with him and his wife. They've been married all this year. So took them to lunch, and they actually bought my lunch. But, you know, the the takeaway to that is I used that when I got home, and I, I probably created the longest Facebook post I've ever, ever had with the intent of pushing it out to law enforcement officers and letting them know the impact that just a mere image can have on an individual. Wow. And, you know, looking up to this guy, and I'm sure there's days that he came home, and the last thing he wanted to see was little Greg Wilkerson <laughs> running, running over to his car <laughs> but that after impact. a long day. Absolutely. And he, he never turned me away. You know, and, I, and I, when I looked him in the eye and I told him, John, I said, I'm just, I'm so thankful. I said, you spawned a police chief, and you didn't even know it. Wow. And to be I able love to that. share that. Yeah, and to be able to share that and come full circle with that, because he was my earliest memory of, of that had to have warmed his heart. Oh, I it mean, did. just, you don't even realize the impact you have on people's lives. And I think that's so important you shared that because a lot that of people gives me chills just don't realize 
one one word, one something can change someone's life forever, and it sounds like that's what he did with you. It is, and we don't always get to see that or hear about it or learn about it. And just the outpouring of support from his family when I tagged him on Facebook, Aww. he's on social media, just reading the things that they had to say. Absolutely, that's my dad. That's the man he is, and it's just Aww. you know, I'm oh, just that's so glad. Wonderful. I mean, it's just yeah. Did that inspire you though, as in your career when kids came up to you, yeah. or when you had the opportunity to also um, engage with kids? Did it also affect how you were affected by him? Ab- absolutely. So my my first police department was at Richardson, Texas. I was hired there in ni- 1991. Yeah, uh, I was 21 years old, young young cop, ready to save the world, but uh, <laughs> uh, quickly went into uh, the bicycle unit in the mid the mid nineties. And uh, matter of fact, uh, one of my best friends is a police chief in Saxe. I saw him last night and we were telling old war stories about bicycles, but we, we, we patrolled an area of Spring Valley and Coit, which was at that time, one of the most culturally diverse areas. Yeah. We had, we had residents from Pakistan, Kurdistan, Iran, Iraq, uh, Mexico, you know, African-Americans. It was just a melting pot. And, and the elementary school at Richardson ISD over there, it, it was said there was over 27 different languages and dialects spoken wow. at that elementary school. So A true melting pot, for sure. It is. Yeah. And to, to meet one-on-one with those people, you're much more approachable on a bicycle. Right. So that, that, for me, really got me going to the direction I'm leading to, uh, community policing. And, and being there for that community, finding out you know, what we perceive as a problem, it's not the problem as right. officers. We, and the only way to know what the problem is or what the perception of that problem is, is to contact have a relationship, build relations with that public, with that community. Wow, wow. That's interesting you say that because you talk about this this man that influenced you younger, but what was it like growing up at home? I mean, were you someone that was influenced? Was there another influence in your life? Absolutely. My dad was an uh, active uh, military veteran, served in Vietnam, so uh, grew up in a very strict regimented household that taught me a lot of responsibilities. Uh, I'm a Gen Xer. He's a baby boomer. We're very closely aligned in that, that sentiment there. So uh, he was up every morning to make the bed. Everything was squared away before you went to school and, uh, you know, taught me a lot. But, you know, transitioning to the reason we're here today to talk about mental health issues, you know, I now know what I witnessed growing up as a young child is the flashbacks to PTSD, the mm. things that my father experienced before it was even ever talked about or even a, a diagnosis, quote, unquote. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, you know, I think helped pave the way for me understanding the challenges of someone with PTSD and then having to deal with that those type of people on the street. And, right. And, you know, and fast-forwarding into Richardson, I remember after the Iraqi war and veterans coming back and PTSD starts, you know, really being yeah. talked about and openly discussed, it, it was very important for us to not only know it, understand it, but also be trained on how to deal with it, how to de-escalate. You know, the key word today now is everything you see on the media de-escalation de-escalation and that's mm-hmm. and that's that's crucial when you're when you're dealing with those those type of people i remember the flashbacks he would hear you know the old chinook helicopter the dual rotor helicopters coming across we were living in mansfield at the time and uh, close to carswell air force base but you know things like that he would he would freeze or you know wow. see him out there mowing the lawn and just hit the deck now you know, did you and, realize back then that that's what he was responding to, or is it just, oh, I mean, not. you were kind of absolutely like, absolutely not. and he never and talked about it, I'm sure. Not until I got my graduate degree uh, at 40. So wow. went back to school, um, needed that to help get me to, to the place where I wanted to be, which was ultimately a police chief. And I, uh, I, I wrote several papers through, you know, 
four years of college, and one of it was the effects of Agent Orange, which yeah. he was he was impacted by. He he served in the Central Highlands area of uh, Vietnam near Pleiku, and he was he was out there in the jungles day in and day out, covered with that defoliant. Mm. Has uh, had multiple issues. multiple issues and problems throughout the years, but you know at that time, no, I had I had no clue as a young child growing up. I mm-hmm. just you know, you know that's got anger issues. Okay, or, or you know. No way to really, I guess, you know, put a label or a diagnosis right. on it, and that—that's—that's that's all I knew. Right. And as he aged, and I, you know, I really saw a turning point when I asked him one day, uh, and at that point he was in his late sixties. I said, "Dad, I'd like to, to interview. I'm writing a paper, and I—I I, I really need to talk to you." And at this point, you know, he—he had—he had, you know, gone from, you know, coping with drinking alcohol to completely stopping and wow. changing his life. He's got, you know, a heck. Great willpower, great willpower, and it, 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 that was a turning point. He he actually had a, a very lengthy conversation with me. It was over the phone. It wasn't in person, but we talked about it. And you know, he I could still tell there's you know not necessarily triggers, but he would he would get very very passionate about some of the things when he when when the, he'd have that recall about certain items and mm. there certain actions and events that happened uh, throughout throughout his time there. But uh, that was the first time that he really opened up to me, and it seemed after that. You know, my my youngest uh, daughter asked. She saw some medals in a in a display case at my grandmother or at my mom her grandmother's house, my mom's house, and uh, I'll never forget. It was Christmas Eve night, and watching them spend almost two hours talking about the Vietnam War. Wow! I'm like, I wish you would have done that with me. You know, yeah. it just because it, I, I see the healing that came along with him talking about it. Oh yeah, getting it out. You know, and instead of just keeping it inside that he did all those years when, when you know, me and my two brothers were growing up, it's just, you know, hey, he handled it in his own way, the way he knew best. But that wasn't the best way. And that's what we're talking about here at Mental Park. We're, we're trying to get people talking about yes. mental health and opening up and realizing that dialogue is healing, mm-hmm. right? And so that's really what we're focused on. We know there's a high percentage of officers who struggle with PTSD. Mm-hmm. There are. There are, you know. Nowadays, we, we find that more and more applicants are coming from the military to, mm-hmm. into the police uh, realm and career, um, and even, even that aside. So, you know, we're, we're onboarding employees that already have it, All right. uh, which is not necessarily, necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it's, it, to, to know they have it and how, how they control it and what, what they do, I yeah. mean, but it's still, it's, it's, uh, it's a very tough issue for a lot of employers on the administrative side of things is you know, what kind of liability are we getting into by employing someone that has that what if they have an episode what you know so there's a lot of a lot of that and you know it could, I think a lot of it still to this day is probably not talked about they, they may have their big diagnosis to say, out there. yeah and trauma is a funny thing because you can have a traumatic experience but you may not see the effects of the trauma on your brain mm-hmm. and in, in the PTSD and the diagnosis until years later. Yeah. So people don't talk about it because maybe they're not affected immediately, but then later on the symptoms show up. Exactly. And, you know, just the, not even trauma, just the natural day-to-day ups and downs of law enforcement oh, is yeah. such a such a stressor. I know that when I, uh, I was probably 15 to 17 years into my 30-year career when I, I, I was made aware of a book called Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. Um, Dr. Gil Martin had wrote about it, and it talks about uh, just the challenges that go on with all the daily pressures of, of being a law enforcement officer and, and the impact that it has on your family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's there's not a police officer I know that's been married one time and still stayed married. I've, I've personally been married twice. 
out of 30 years. Um, I've, I've lost five officers, three to suicide, two to in the line of duty deaths in 30 years, serving Richardson, Little Lemon, and Corinth. That's scary. That's the yeah. North Dallas suburbs. And I just so. read something that more police officers die by suicide than yeah. the line of duty. That's, that's a that's scary true. statistic. Yes. yes. And, and, and three and of you, those were Richardson police officers. Yeah. Oh, wow. And you're, you talked about, like, these these officers that are, you know, you're hiring on that have PTSD. And I see the pros and cons of that from the administrative side, but also, too, do you see that bringing these guys on board may be also effective for whenever y'all are on call and maybe they identify someone that's suffering from PTSD, those officers can maybe relate to them a little bit better? Do you kind of see that oh, as absolutely. a pro? That's, that is definitely the, the, the pro side of things is having someone that, that's been there, done that, uh, male, female, whatever. It's, I mean, mm-hmm. we've, and we've got a lot of female veterans out there that are, that are serving now, too. Uh, you know, I think most of my recent experience, it's typically with, with uh, I think, just because of the sheer numbers of males that serve in the military that, by and large, there's that out there. But I don't want to dismiss the fact that there, there are a lot of females out oh, there yeah. that have the very same thing. It's just it, it's, it's, it race and gender and it doesn't that discriminate. It, does it doesn't not care. It does yeah. not discriminate. We say that all, all the time. It does not care. But going back to, you know, what we talked about with, you know, if I, if I would have known as a young officer uh, that there, there were books out there about emotional survival, could it help me save a marriage? Could it help save me financially? You know, you talk about the ups and downs. You know, when, when, when an officer goes on patrol, they're, they're in a heightened state of awareness. Mm-hmm. And this, and I'm talking 90s. I'm not talking about the, the craziness that's going on in today's society. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I can't even imagine. I've, I've been off the streets long enough to know that I don't know anymore. And But I can relate to when I was that you're in that heightened state. And then when you go from that heightened state to the most highest elevated state, when you're dealing with, you know, facing someone with an, uh, another weapon against you or you're in a, a physical combat, a fight over something, or you're breaking up a fight. I mean, that 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 high that you get from the adrenaline and everything else that's, that's kicking in, the Pitocin, and all the, all the things that your body's dealing with, I mean, foot chases, things like that, where literally we would, after it was all done, I mean, your legs wouldn't stop shaking. You, you had all this energy that you just didn't know what to do with, and you come home. Wow. And you're on your day off, and now you've gone from, you know, 30,000 feet, you know, at Mach 3 yeah. to the lowest of lows, you know, it's sit, sitting there toll. with your two-year-old yeah. watching Barney. And it's yeah. that that mental up and down, up and down, and typically what you see. And you, re, you read Dr. Gilmartin's book, and it talks about, you know, you're going you're gonna to want to replace that high, yeah. whether that's with alcohol, whether that's, you know, promiscuous activity with, a, with another person or shopping, spending money, fast cars, motorcycles. I've, I've done it all. I'd be a millionaire right now if I wouldn't have bought. I've had every Harley <laughs> known to man. I've had both. But you do. You, you yeah. look for that outlet of yeah. what, what next, what's next, what's next, because it is so addictive that it's, it's like a drug. And, and so mentally, that alone, without the trauma of, of a major incident, just that alone, the day in and day out, I believe, is, is, is enough for some people to really, really suffer. Wow. And, and I read through that, that PTSD in officers is it's built over time. It's not a single event. It's right. like a, a series of things. Exactly. It could be a huge traumatic, you know, uh, you know all these officers that, that you see, the most recent thing that impacted us here locally in Allen with the yeah. active shooter over yeah. there, that that one and only single event. A game changer. Would, yeah, game changer. However, that doesn't happen everywhere all the time, thankfully. But these other smaller episodes, they build, they compound. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've, I've seen... Even even when I was working for Richardson, uh, the steps that were taken internally to to 
help combat that. And, and the first thing from a police officer's perspective is uh, one thing I always prided myself on is I didn't associate just with police officers. That's the one thing I did not do. I, I had friends and neighbors and others that did something totally different. When I was away, I wanted to be away. That was mm-hmm. my downtime. And it was the choice I made. I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but it was a really good choice for me. Yeah, right. And so I had an outlet, and, and I had other people that I was around. But it's it just seems like sometimes that when you're just focused around just that, that's the only people you trust. Right. And they don't want to go to a counselor that's never been a police officer or, or at least served in the military. They're not yeah. going to – I promise you, they will – the majority – will not open up and they barely open up to I was part of a critical incident stress stress management team uh, at a couple of my departments and that's we had these teams of, that, that would be there after a traumatic event that would do you want to talk we, we, you can't force someone to do that no. it's not going to work they but you've got to open that door and allow it to just sit there and it may be a day it may be a week it may be a month later it may be a year later hey I need to talk to you about this you know it's mm-hmm. it's you know so there's things that that you know, really stick with you. And, you know, the, probably the most difficult thing I've ever done in my entire life is have to work one of those suicides that I told you about. It was one of my officers and my mm. team had to go in and investigate it. And the, the, the trauma, the, the when, when an officer, when a team, you know, as, as detectives go in to investigate something, they go in it's, it's a homicide until we prove different, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just the way we work it. We follow the mm-hmm. facts, but it's, it's, we have to stay focused. And, you know, at that time she was, you know, this, this other officer was living with a very good friend of mine. Um, he's the one that called it and he reported it, found her down in the garage, mm-hmm. you know, and so, it, you know, to get that call from your superiors to say, your team's going to be out there. You're the ones that are going to be out there, you know, confiscating all the weapons, going through all the computers to look through and do all these search warrants and all these things with the most intimate details of couples that people that we worked with, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that I will say was probably one of the toughest things and probably one of the straws that led me to move on. Uh, after that, I actually took a little small break and went into private security. I ran a, security company here in Dallas and started, uh, I was an operations manager that we were based out of Phoenix, Arizona, and went to work for a retired police chief and did that for a couple of years. Missed it and got back, but it's, you know, probably for me, if you were to say, Greg, what's the most, Mm -hmm. you know, what had the most impact to you is, you know, in a negative manner. And I've been on suicides. I've I've, I've been on uh, murder suicides where parents have murdered their children. I mean, it's some of the most horrific, horrible things. But for me to have... One you know, of your own. One of my officers that directly worked for me that was struggling with other medical issues, and so there, you know, there were some other variables at play here, and that, and those, those restraints were eventually going to end her career, and that's all she thought she could do oh. is be a police officer, and when, yeah. when she couldn't do that, it, that, that's that's the choice she made, and and so, uh, you know, that that's taken me a long, long time to not only process and you know you never know why but you know I felt a lot of internal guilt over that um she was working for me in vice narcotics I was supervising crimes against persons as well I was we were a little shorthanded at the time and she couldn't handle the stressors and she asked me to transfer her back to patrol and I told her no and you where you need to be not only as a friend but just as a subordinate right, too. So I was right. a first line supervisor mm-hmm. and uh it was within weeks of her going back to patrol. She'd come in and, and had had a had a medical episode where you know car wasn't parked correctly in the in the parking space. She'd been at the station for two hours on a call that should have taken fifteen minutes. Just kind of zoned out, and and that was you know, they sent her home, and that was the night. Oh. And 
and, you know, should I've asked more? Should I have, you know, what the who's, what's, when's, right. where's, why's, all of that starts running through. Like, it does everybody. Yeah. But, you know, being her supervisor that ultimately, I mean, the chief approved the transfer. I, I basically denied it. I was overwritten. So it wasn't all on my shoulders. But I felt like it was. I sure. felt like I did. I should have dug more. I should have dug deeper. Uh, I, I, and she had lupus, and I, and I knew that. And, and so, uh, you know, we worked around it with different issues because of the – side effects that you were having with that but it's uh you know that was that was tough and it took me many 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 years to to get over that to process to to forgive mm-hmm. those above me that made me and that my decision. crew to mm-hmm. to go do that and and I, I i received apologies i accepted those apologies but it you know that was probably the one of the most difficult things that i went through in my entire 30-year career. You know, you said something really interesting about how you know, officers aren't going to seek out treatment from someone who's not been an officer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we know is a lot of these things, we know PTSD gets better, uh, depression gets better, anxiety gets better when you seek help. How do departments put in some protocols mm-hmm. or something for them to get some mental health that's maybe uh, that they have that's that's built into the program there? Well, I think what I talked about earlier is, is key to that, those critical incident stress management uh, programs. Not only that, uh, we see a lot more nowadays uh, at a lot of the progressive agencies having actually mentors where they will take a young officer that has no experience and pair them up. They, they don't really, they're not trained by this officer. It's just that, that one person mm-hmm. you can go to off the record, so to speak, to, hey, I've got an issue with my field training officer, I've got problems at home, I've got this, I've got that. You know, that's the other component, too. I mean, as a supervisor, I mean, day in and day out, I can't tell you how many people I sent home on what we call, we did call mental health days. I mean, internally, it's what we called it. You know, sometimes we would say, I need a mental health day tomorrow, you know. And it was a sick day. I mean, it's authorized time, but we we had a label for it. And it wasn't wasn't negative, you know, to, to do that. But I would have officers come in that would be stressed out financially or, or mm-hmm. had a fight with their wife. Bro, I, I need your head screwed on straight tonight. You're working deep nights. We're working down in this area down there. No, I'm not, I'm not going to go knock on your wife's door at 3 a.m. because you had your head, head up your rear and you lost your life. You know? And so there, you know, there's stress, added stress to the supervisory right. team on top of that is, is you're res- not only you're responsible for you, you're responsible for everyone under your span of control. And it, so it's, you know, it, it's just it's, 24-7 stress, stress, stress for at all levels. But, you know, going back to what we discussed is those critical incident stress management uh, teams put together, having those mentors, someone that, that, you know, keeping those doors open. And I think now seeing the transition, being being a Gen Xer, you know, the, these, the millennials, I mean, we're all different from mm-hmm. the other generations, and, and we have to understand that. But I have seen, a for all the things I dislike about the millennial generation, they are, I think, more open to conversation they're a little yeah. they're more family 100%. oriented it, right. it's it's different you know they they come out well i need you know i've got two children i need to go to days yeah i worked seven years before i went to days and then i had tuesday <laughs> wednesday off you know and it was for a very short time because i promoted then i went back to deep nights with tuesday wednesday off yeah. you know so it's it but it's amazing that it, but it's also good to see right you know, we may not be able to accommodate that because of their short tenure but that's on their mind right and, and i'm seeing this shift a lot you know personally over the years of where for me, it was a career. I gave 110% every day. I can't tell you the birthdays, the the Christmases, wow. the, the Thanksgivings. I mean, oh, my gosh, the homicides on Thanksgiving are horrendous. I mean, almost every, if I was on call on, on Thanksgiving, I knew I'd work a murder. I mean, it was just, like, wow. unbelievable. And it's all, fam- you know, family-type stuff. So that, you know, getting to, to a point where you see these officers that are 
understand the challenges of shifts, but they put family first. I, right. I, I do like to see that. So that's one thing about the millennials that I, that yeah, I really Yeah, that's a, and really I think like. that's a great point. And I do think, and not only are they putting family first, but they do a lot of self-care. Right. They really, and they talk more about mental they do. health. They do. And they take all of that really seriously, like being that whole person. Yeah, and we're starting to see too, which I'm thankful for. I know you are too, Carla is, and I'm sure you are too, Greg, is the, the fact that back in the day when you were being an officer, a lot of these calls that you would get were actually people that were suffering from mental health issues, and officers weren't trained to know how to exactly respond to that, or they didn't have a response team that had, you know, counseling or psychiatry as one of their specialties to where they could actually keep this from becoming, you know, an injury or death. And so have you seen a lot of shift in that since being an officer in your day and and what we're seeing with the new departments and the departments now? I think there's more focus on mental health now than there ever has been. Do I think it's fixed or anywhere near it needs to be? Right. Absolutely not. And and I, I say that looking at the system and, and, you know, hopping around to three different agencies during my 30 years before I actually created my, my, my fourth agency, moving from Dallas County, Richardson was in Dallas and Collin mm-hmm. County, and we had a, a, a pretty good supportive system in place because there's county hospitals mm-hmm. that, that serve the mentally ill. Denton County does not have a county hospital per se to deal with that. So when I'm transitioning over to Denton County, I mean, what do you what do you mean it takes me eight or nine hours to deal with a mental health call? And and we've got to call a mental health deputy from the sheriff's department. Then we've got to call MHMR. Or we've got to go through wow. UBH or or you know some state run school off of Mayhill. And you know and all the red tape that you go through for that, it's it's easy to understand. Well, they say, oh, okay, well you know what? Yeah, he committed a Class C offense. You know, take his butt to jail wipe your hands and you're done and I think too often that is still happening because there's not enough resources resources and programs and money coming from the state to get this done now I will I I will say you know in in Denton County's defense that the the commissioners and elected officials have have tried really hard there's a lot there's a good revenue stream coming in and over the last 10 years I've, I've seen a dramatic change in Denton County from what there was when I first went there to what's available now and and there's still not a county hospital there and think of all the counties, these small rural areas where yeah. there's not one. What what happens? Yeah. And I'll tell you, if there's not a county hospital, then you've got to go to Wichita Falls. Ugh. What if you're five hours away from Wichita Falls? Yeah. yeah. You know, what if what if what if they're on divert? What if they don't they don't have space? Yeah. You know, there's there's just not enough places and programs to, to effectively deal with it. Or let's say they're combative, they're intoxicated to their own drugs. Mm. Many facilities won't take them. And understandably. Right. Uh, Denton County's really reached out, and they've 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 got off-duty officers at work now. Their intake process is even if they're combative, they you know they've got security there. They want them there. We you know we've got to get them help because we got to keep diverting them, keep from diverting them over to to the jails because that's not that's not the answer. Right. Or we're taking them to emergency rooms, and then we're overcrowding emergency rooms. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. Which is not a place. There's not. I, and you know, I'll, I'll share this, and I talked about this last night uh, when I, when I came back after a three-year retirement, so to speak, in, in, in Mexico, uh, I did some consulting work for a, a hospital here in the area, and that's exactly the case. So they they would have, uh, there, there's a process called APAL, it's apprehension of a person without a warrant. It allows a police officer to basically take someone into custody if they think that they're in immediate danger to themselves or others, and that that is what we need. And when I was talking about Denton County, an officer could do that, but there's nobody to turn them over to. You know, exactly. it so wow. it's so now now there is. At that time there wasn't, but 
And so where do they turn them over to now? So, for example, in, in, uh, in Denton, there's uh, MHMR mm-hmm, okay. uh, has gotten additional funding, uh, and they, they actually come into that facility now, and they will process those uh, without having Because before that, what was having to happen is you would send a deputy from the county to whatever, even if you're a city, let's say you worked in the town of Little Elm and you had a mental health issue, a Denton County deputy would have to come out. They, might, they may or may not be on duty. Um, if they are, it may be a couple hours till they get there. Then the MHMR has got to come out and do their quote-unquote evaluation. evaluation. And, and you've, you're taking your precious resource. You don't, there's not enough police officers to patrol the streets already. Now you've got at least two officers tied up, if not a supervisor, on trying to deal with it. But what if you're a two-man department? What if you're a three-man department? That, that's your entire force for the entire shift or beyond over this. And so it, it, the, the impact to your resources is just uh, unbelievable. Not to mention the money that the taxpayers are paying for you guys to have to go. If you, you sit down and think about the money lost, if you figure that versus just go ahead and building a facility, problem's fixed. And I, I really wish that people would think about it from that direction. All the resources we're putting into, the time that it takes for you guys to locate the resources, the money that's lost from taxpayers there, if they could just figure that out right there, Buildings would be built. Redirected to it would yeah, all be yeah. done. I mean, there, that would be a solution, right? Absolutely. And it would be great even to have mental health professionals on the police force yes. or officers trained or you and know that's, educated. In that's mental the health. next step that I was going to. The the deputies I spoke to you about receive special training, mm-hmm. and they, that's why they're called mental health deputies. And now, pretty much every every police department is now doing I love that, it. Espe- especially in Denton County, where you don't have a county hospital to yeah. go fill out that APAL form, drop them off at at Parkland Hospital, have them evaluated right. and, and see what, what needs to happen. So, you know, in Richardson, we use them. And we also use, I think, Medical City. We could take them over there mm-hmm. as well. Those, those were the two They've locations. got a good facility yeah. there, too. Yeah. yeah. But, again, yeah. that's, you know, sometimes that's temporary as well. You know, right. They'll, they'll go in there, and it, the system's only as good as, as the people are honest. Yes. And, and sometimes, you know, they'll tell them, yeah, give me my meds. I'll be up. they pop one. They go back, throw oh. them in the dumpster. and They yeah, absolutely know how to work the system, a, oh, yeah. for sure. 100%. For sure. Which is frustrating for you guys because yes. they're the repeaters that Repeat are taking your time. And, and it's it's just frustrating. But yes. it's, at the same time, there's a... A level of empathy, I guess, you have to put no, out there. There is empathy along with frustration. You know, right. you, you talk to some of the, the officers that, that worked years and years and years ago. I'm not talking about any recent times to where they were like, hey, where do you want to go? Oh, okay. <laughs> Buying bus tickets, put them on a bus. Yeah. Put them on a bus. Yeah. To wherever. You know, who in their right mind would do that? Yeah. But I mean, it's just it, that 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 the was, old mentality that we had. Yes. And the, and, and the lack of resources. The lack of resources. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Just it. Times All you're have doing changed. is displacing the problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, we, we do that with crime. You know, the police, when, when we worked Spring Valley and Coit, Dallas was on one side and, and Richardson uh, was on the other. When we had a strong foot force of going on, you know, crime would get better in Richardson and we'd push it all back into Dallas. You know, you're, wow. you're never going to eradicate it. Yeah. You're, you're, you're just you're displacing just it. it. And around. that's the same thing that was happening with these poor individuals that truly needed needed help, and they were just being displaced. Somebody, let's push them off to somebody else's problem. And I think we've been doing that for years. We're pushing and pushing and pushing, and we're running out of places to push. Yeah. And I think it's creating more of this mental health crisis. Well, what's, you know, I guess, I don't know if irony is the right word here, but for years as a law enforcement officer and and throughout my career, I was a a big supporter of Texas Special Olympics. And Mm. and so, you know, a wonderful nonprofit program that, that, that serves individuals with, intellectual disabilities and you know we don't even use the word mental retardation anymore it's it's those with intellectual disabilities and I always had a special place in my heart for those those individuals and I, I always learned more from them being around them 
than they ever got out of me. They, you know, they're, they're enamored and just in love with police and the badges, and you know, they just, and they're just, <laughs> they're amazing. just so real. They're so, they're so honest. Real. Yes, so no filters, no filters. <laughs> but uh, you know, the best of times. You know, and you see these programs that are out there. That so I know it can be done. Right. You know, we're, we're doing we're doing this for people that were born with intellectual disabilities right. and have these. The people that have developed over time mental health. Why, why can't we have the same thing? Why can't we have the same thing? And I, and I think hopefully America's on that path to recognizing the more it's talked about, the more it's discussed, you know, the more opportunities that just like this to join this podcast, mm-hmm. to, you know, put out a message and let people know, it's, you know, number one, yes, it's okay to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Two, yes, you need to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And three, what can we do instead of just talking about it to affect change? And right. what's it going to take to get to that next level, whether it's writing your, your congressman or your, your state representatives on, on, on getting additional funding, resources, facilities, whatever, whatever it takes. But it's just, it just, it's going to take a multidisciplinary approach to put a committee and a group together like that to really see this to the finish line. And you're looking at really high-stress jobs. Like, we're talking mm-hmm. about officers and very high-stress, burnout. I mean, they're underappreciated, underpaid. It is the same for mental health professionals. Mm-hmm. Yes. All of those things are following them just as much. And so th- I think that's why we're not getting people to consistently stay in these careers because – They can't. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's such a high turnover. We're so focused on taking care of everybody else, but we don't take care of the people that are actually the ones that take care of us, protect us mentally and physically. Yeah. And it's become, I think, like you said, the light's coming out and it's shining on these issues, but there's so much more to do with this. So much more. Well, and you talk about self-care and the, you know, the new millennials and, you know, one thing that uh, I think was probably the most beneficial to me in that self-care type of thing is I, I had the wonderful opportunity in 2010 to attend the FBI National Academy in Quantico. Wow. And only 1% of law enforcement officials get a chance to go to that. So it's a very, very prestigious thing. I don't even wear a college ring. I wear my FBI ring. Is I'm so proud of it. And it was three months that I was up there. But the whole teaching and the whole reason for that program was, num- number one, many, many, many years ago was to professionalize policing and stop the brutality and, and, you know, the things that were going on and the corruption. And so that was a main intent. But now, there, you know, the, the focus has shifted on, okay, if I'm going to be a leader of an agency, then by God, I better understand what it's going to take to, to lead my team. And I've got I've to be mentally fit. I've got to be physically fit. I've got to project an image. And, you know, if – and we all we all see. I mean, you know, I might want to pick on obesity, but it's it's there. There's a certain connotation. There's a certain you know amount of respect or lack of command presence for for those type of things. And and you know how do we fix that? Self care because just like you talked about, the police officers aren't getting support from the community like they used to. No. And there's a lot to do. I mean, I'm, you know, there's a lot of great communities out there. Right. But the healthcare workers, the nurses, the teachers. Look look at all of these jobs and these these you know public service jobs that are so crucial and so vital to ensuring well-being for all of us. Right. Mm-hmm. And these are the ones that are the most high turnover yeah. because, again, they're lacking that support. And my point to all this is there's not an FBI academy for teachers. There's not an FBI academy for mental health professionals. And, you know, I'm thankful that I got to go through that. But, again, teaching that self-care that, hey, if we're going to be in charge of taking care of others, number one, we've got to take care of ourselves mm-hmm. first. 100%. We have to. And that mm-hmm. that, that – Quick, you know, it carries over to family, to work, and yes. to everything we do in our lives, and we've got to make that time. And we, and we can. we just got to be diligent about it and, and plan ahead. But 
teaching that message to all those other workers. It's, it's not just police that need to hear it, the firefighters, the teachers, the mental health workers, the nurses, all of those that are in this, this realm fighting this battle and trying to, you know, do the best they can with what little resources. All your have. first responders, which is everybody you just said, yes. your teachers, your all your therapists, your police officers. And and I wish everybody know knew that this is this is a passion. You guys went into this not because of the money. Because the money's not there necessarily. Right. You did it because you wanted to serve people. And I, I really wish we would get back to that mentality. Instead of vilifying our teachers, our therapists, our police officers, if we got back into the mentality of going, look, this is, this is they did this for a passion. And unfortunately, we're seeing now that just like you, the resources are so, so limited, it's burning everybody out. Yes. You're on yes. burnout. So what do you think a solution is other than, you know, we're talking about, you know, providing more resources. What are some other solutions you think that we should be coming up with? You know, I, th- I think generally speaking with mental health overall is to continue down that path to ensure that there's enough state and federal funding, right. number one, to, to take care of this crisis. And it's, you know, we, we I don't care if it's, you know, I'm not even tying it in just to the, the, the active shooter, mass shooter type incidents that we've had, but that ties back into mental health. Um, oh, yeah. You know, so many times. And it's just, you know, there's, in society nowadays, it's, we're so desensitized. Mm-hmm. And whether you want to blame it on video games or, you know, parent, you know, dual income households where the kids are doing nothing but occupying themselves with video games and on the on their phones and, and devices, but you know, there's, there's gotta be, there's gotta be more focus on, on that. And I think, you know, ultimately is the same reason that we're building a police department where, where I'm at right now, we need a purpose built facility to better serve our employees so they can better serve our residents and our businesses, and our Talk. business owners. So the same, same concept applies for, for this here is we need those facilities and they need, you know, and then there's, there's, got to be funding out there somewhere you look at all these other police departments across the state where they're taking away training and they're mandating mm-hmm. all this other type of money is available we just got to find a way to, where, where to carve it out of from yes. somewhere else that's not being used to this best advantage and, and right. focus it on mental health and that's where our political leaders need to really right. focus on the budgets and where the money's going and are we really using it to the best advantage of the communities and so i mean we need to find ways to Rebudget that money and make sure we're getting facilities that are going to actually help people get well. Tell us about this facility you're talking about. So, uh, Elm Ridge is is the uh, agency where I created the the, the police department. They they rebranded. Uh, it was the Denton County Freshwater Supply District Number Ten, which was a water control and improvement district. Uh, so, they will most water districts are are built out in rural areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, master plan type communities and they're they're funded by the developers who in turn get reimbursed through the sale of bonds to to pay for things you're, you're basically trying to help produce growth in the county when the county has no money to to do that there's no economic development corporation so to speak for counties and and there's there's, there's no programs for that so these water districts come in typically they're annexed the one that i work for uh will probably never be annexed because of they have three different non-contiguous areas that fall within three different jurisdictions so uh, they uh, wanted, they were not happy with uh, the, the lack of service from the, the county, mm-hmm. from the sheriff's department. Mm-hmm. And it was nothing against the sheriff or, right. or, or his men or women. It was the fact that they're serving, didn't count it. They're, a rural, they're tapped out. Yeah, they're tapped out. They're, they, they're, they're there helping chase loose cows and, yeah. and, and take, <laughs> take reports from the farmers, but they're not, they're, they're, they're not 
they're not built in the, the whole sheriff's department. Is not it, the, the focus is not on master plan communities where right. you're throwing ten and twelve thousand people all over Denton County. Right. It just simply can't be done. And so the residents basically said, "Hey, we're not okay with an hour response time on a, on an alarm call to our house. We're not okay with never seeing a police car. We're not okay." With, so it, it just the leaders finally said, "Hey, Greg, can we?" By law, start a police department. I said, absolutely. There's five of them in the state of Texas right now already, and yes, I can do that for you. Wow! And so that I love that. So I do too. Kind of I, I wasn't even aware. Police officer. Yeah, it, yeah absolutely. And there's, I tell you, the, the the really cool thing about that is, I don't know anyone in the police chief circle in in the entire state of Texas that can say they started a police department. Yeah. You know, and there's a couple of independent school district departments that are popular right. so yeah. that they've done that but it, it was a heck of a feat I, I retired after 25 years of service uh leaving the city of Corinth and started the very next day at the water district and that was May of 2018 and I went live with a nine man operation man and woman operation nine nine personnel on January 20th of wow. 2019 so in seven months I, I'm talking about no buildings no uniforms, no badges, no guns, no handcuffs, no boots, no, no general orders. No, I mean, <laughs> wow. from the ground up to that, and and so and it was you know I had a wonderful team that 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 right. made that made that come true that shared my passion and the the elected director's passion to to do that, and so coming full circle, that's what brought me back to Texas and uh, introduced me to my my fiance. So I'm, and I'm she happy is to be beautiful, back. by the way. Gorgeous. She's gorgeous. <laughs> so, You're marrying you up, Greg. <laughs> I, I am, and I know it. But I got a call. Uh, I was living on the island of Cozumel, and I got a call from my general manager at the at the district, and he said, "Hey." Uh, got a proposition for you you want to come back to texas absolutely not i'm not causing mail to texas <laughs> why would i but you know here's another mental health uh, tidbit too you know i, I actually uh, never if you asked me four or five years ago if i would have ever put these all these words together in this order in a sentence that right. says there's only so many margaritas and beaches until it becomes old and mundane i mean literally i was i was kind of going into a, a state of depression myself um i had found that you need a purpose in life. And I've retired I agree. early mm-hmm. at 49, mm-hmm. and that was too early. I still had things I wanted to do. And so uh, I thought about it after about four or five weeks. The boss called again and said, okay, I need an answer. And I said, yeah, when do you need me? And he said, well, you know, when can you get here? I said, I'll be there in a couple of weeks. And I, I had downsized everything. I mean, literally everything I owned fit in three suitcases. So oh wow! Packed up my little four pound Chihuahua and, and uh, my and my luggage. <laughs> the and, Chihuahua. And, you know, Don Pablo. Don Pablo. Is that his name? He, Don, he that's awesome. Uh, he's I from Playa del Carmen. He's a true Mexican Chihuahua. That is so, awesome. so, but he's having having a blast in this hundred and five degree heat. Right he is. He God lo- loves he it. Loves it. He loves oh, it. that's great. I love that. No so ocean much. though. No, no ocean. He misses Dang the, it. He misses the Playa. He misses the Playa. That is so amazing. I do want to ask, how do officers handle the changing societal view and their role in the community? I mean, it's changing so much. It is. And, you know, the advice that I gave the officers when I was when I was chief and on down the line is uh, the less outside noise in media that you can subject yourself mm. to, the better. Yeah. Um, because I, I tell you, it's, you know, after, you know, when I was transitioning to from full-time to part-time, I was actually flying back and forth uh, from Mexico as, as the new chief took over, and I was still kind of consulting and doing some work for the districts. And uh, I would be 
subjected to the media. That's all I, that's all I got in Mexico. What do, what do you see in here is from Facebook, from this, that, and the other, because I wasn't living it. So mm-hmm. I would, I fell into that trap myself, mm-hmm. but yet I'd come back and I would be in uniform. I'd go to lunch somewhere. And it's like, every time I went, someone picked up the tab, you know, oh, it's the waiter or waitress would come around. No, it's already been paid for by another table. And so it, that, that just goes to show you that, you know, there really are good people out there. There are. You know? there are. And, this you know, is just America. Just like the country song, most people are good. People. Yes, most people are good. And they yes. truly are. And, and you know, when going back to Dr. Gil Martin's book on emotional survival for police, police officers, and, you know, he talks about that is, you know, don't surround yourself with all police officers. You know, you're trying to fight off that cynicism mm-hmm. to where, you know, everybody's guilty until they're proven innocent. And I don't mean that in a judicial sense, meaning that, you know, you're always got this jaded view about everything because you it, it works on the streets and that's, that's, a proper application, right? But you don't want to take that home to your wife and use that same type of thing, you know, or your or your children, or you know, you, know, you prove to me that you're innocent. You know, you're you're guilty until you prove otherwise. You know, it's you you find that you. <laughs> it's use hard not to get out of that mentality, tactics, though. Those mentality, yeah. yes, yeah. and it's and it's a constant battle. So, again, it's it's you know, with my 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 youngest daughter is a nurse, and and you know, she's gone through a couple of of traumatic things here lately. She works in downtown Fort Worth, and and. You know, there was a recent shooting over in Como where seven or eight victims were. They, they received a couple of the victims there, and she said, Dad, the worst thing I ever did was on my break, start getting on the, on the, on the, on the news, seeing what happened. And, you know, it wasn't a gang versus gang thing. These were innocent vic- right. victims, you know, and, and she had a hard time processing that. And I'm like, sweet girl, you're, you're never going to know why. Yeah. Why is going to be unanswered so many times, you know. And I said, I promise you from – you know, running a crimes against persons uh, unit um, from everything from, you know, gang issues to, you know, gang rapes to homicides. We, you know, Richardson was a, a small town, but we anything that was a crime against a person came to my unit. And I was, you know, I managed that for a couple of years. And you see a lot of things, a lot of horrible things. But again, you've got to just, you've got to distance yourself. You've got to, you've got to disconnect and you've got to find a way to do it that's healthy, that's not through alcohol, that's not through, uh, you know, staying in the gym, doing what you can do to do that. But you know, tuning out, tuning out, and, and not surrounding yourself with with peers of the same thing. And I, th- I think that would go to the firemen and the uh, the mental health workers things too. It's just it's good to get that other outsider perspective because when you do that, you realize how much people do care and how much how many good people are there. Yeah, getting to know your neighbors. Gosh sakes, you know, we just moved into a wonderful neighborhood in Salina and. Uh, we've met both of our neighbors now. Some new ones just moved in from California, but it's just again, it's different people, different perspectives, different jobs, and that's you know over the years I've always I've always said you know you got to strive to be a better person every day and you know never never stop learning and and to focus on that. But the more you can learn about others, the more the more you learn, and I think that and with that comes adaptability, and, and you're you're more open to change and different ways of doing things because if you stay with that nu- that same nucleus of people mm-hmm. it's group think and you're going to be mm-hmm. stuck down there and you're going to you're going to keep thinking the same thing yeah and i think just in general getting people to see police officers are choosing to do this they're choosing to be in this job every day and they're choosing it because they love people they love all people and you know right now we have this perspective that there's some kind of bad wrap or something about wearing a uniform and people are seeing them in a different way. And that just has to be so disheartening for this community of officers to know that they're doing this. They're putting their lives on their line. Their families are sacrificing. They're sacrificing. And they, people see them in such a bad way. It, it's tough. And, I, you know, I, media again. Yeah. Know, I hate yeah. to point my finger at media because as a former public information officer, when we had a bad, you know, something go on or if we had a kidnapping and 
you know, they were our friends. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I reached out. Yes, yeah. absolutely. But by the same token, they're, you know, they've also got a job to do and then ratings and everything else. Right. And, you, you know, I, I go back to the Vietnam War. You, you look at what, what little was known during the Vietnam War because there was no media to, to right. capture live, live things. I mean, we're, we're watching war live now, yeah. uh, whether you're in Ukraine or wherever you're at. You know, the things that, she, that my fiance sees from Peru, she's from Lima, all the government issues and torment stuff. I mean, we, we, we are just inundated bombarded, yeah. and bombarded with all this media. And so... Yeah, are are there one percent of cops that are bad? Absolutely, and they need to lose their job. They need to be there's bad apples everywhere. There's bad apples everywhere. It shouldn't affect the whole profession. But unfortunately, we're living in a world that wants to vilify. One one bad apple makes them all bad. And and I will say though to that that it comes in with effective leadership. So people like you, officers get in situations unfortunately because the media has vilified them, not even knowing the circumstances, they need to know that they're supervisors and that they're they've got their back. And are you seeing a shift in that? Because it feels like sometimes when I watch the news, and it could be, you know, you're seeing that from the outside, not the inside. Do you feel like these officers truly feel like these, their their lieutenants, they have their backs, and they're not being influenced by the higher ups of the city governments and all Politics that good stuff? And yeah. Like that. By and large, yes, okay. I'll, I'll say that. And again, it goes back to the individual that's in that leadership right. role. Of course, it, it just so you know, there's so many variables at play with that. But I'll say this that you know, there's there's the line level supervisors that are out there. There's, there's no doubt the higher you go up the chain and yes, their priorities shift and change and you're, you're, you're looking at things through a different lens and you know, it, it's, it, it is different, but you know, like I told my officers day in and day out as a chief, I said, I promise you, I said, you're not going to have an answer the, the general orders is not going to answer every question you have out there. But I said, I pride myself on two things. Number one, I call it the pillow test. If I can lay my head down on the pillow at night and I can peacefully sleep, then I know I've done something that's either right for the individual or it might be right for the organization or whatever the case may be. It may not be a popular decision, but, right. you know, and, and it's just that, that self-test, you know, that, that I do. But, you know, I told all of my officers, I don't care if you break the law. I don't care if you break the rules. If I can stand up before Channel 5 News today and defend what you did, by God, do it. Wow. I mean, and it's that simple. It's that, yeah, the so, rules are meant to be broken. Sometimes you have to. I, I'll give a prime example. We had a Garland police officer that was running down the tollway chasing a, a drunk lady going wrong way, going the wrong way on the toll road on George Bush. And and this is where you, when you're a chief, you can't, you can't completely dial out. you got to know what's going on around mm-hmm. you, and you got to see what these officers are doing because I guarantee you every time I learn something like this, that would be in my that would be my briefing topic, and I would go in there and I would brief those officers with that. First thing they they said was this officer violated policy. He turned the rack around and he went the wrong way on that road, but he went the wrong way, head on collision that car stopped it. He he was injured, seriously injured. Uh, got the suspect, and I said, "That's good police work." What? Our general order says we want yeah. Yeah, our general order says that. But I said, in this situation, that officer saw two or three cars coming yeah. and knew that there was going to be a head-on collision. He took it over there, and he... He took the hit. He took the hit. Yeah. He took the hit. Can I defend that all day long? Absolutely, I yeah. can. Yeah. Is it against the general order? Yes. You know, may we get sued? Maybe so. But 
But the lives are saved. I, I can't, but, yeah, I can't go 200 yards down the street down there and then have to go knocking on everybody's doors. I'm sorry that your family yeah. four got killed yes. you know, on their way to, to, to school today because yeah. they had a drunk driver going the wrong way. You know, it, wow. it's things like that. So it's yeah. just, you know. Rules <sighs> need to be changed you know, periodically evaluated, looked at, or they is this be in the best interest? And defended, yeah. absolutely, and, and and that's that's the thing. And so, you know, that's the that's the thing that these officers need to know. They need to know that, and yeah. that's got to be clearly communicated. Because if not, they're going to make decisions. What I'm seeing is actually the opposite of that, um, or the extremes. I'm seeing two different extremes. I'm seeing millennials who have no social skills whatsoever right. that go from zero to deadly force unnecessarily, mm-hmm. or Officers that are scared to death to make a decision, and they're getting shot, and they're getting killed. And we're seeing a lot of that because right now. What, what's because my boss going to think? What's, yes. my, what, what's, what's, yeah. what's, what's the jury going to think? What's my neighbors going to think? What's the media going to think? They're worried. They're this gonna, is going through their yes. mind when they need to be pulling the trigger. Yeah. You know, and so, those, it, so yes, it, this has created, this pressure has created two sets of problems now. Now we're, that pendulum is swinging left to right. But it has to stop. It has to stop. We have to get back in a place where we trust our officers. We're trusting our leaders. They're there for the community. And you're right. These officers are scared to death. We have to back our guys. And, uh, you know, between our military, our our first responders, our police officers, they need the support of the community. Um, Because, you know, it's like you said, it's just one bad apple usually. Exactly. But leaders like you, I mean, if every department could have the mentality you have, of knowing, hey, you did the right thing. It doesn't matter if you met protocol yeah. or you violated protocol. You did the right thing. You saved three additional lives and lawsuits. Yep. You saved money and you took a hit for yourself. And, and people need to come back to the respecting that that these first responders, they put their life on the line every day. And not to mention, it's not just doing that at a day-to-day, but then they have to go home and they have to, you know, process, process everything. And, and, you know, it's not – their job doesn't stop because doesn't problems stop. still exist at home. And it's – it's. I wish people understood the sacrifices that our law enforcement make. Yeah, and likewise, I think it's important for officers to be trained to understand their community, to yeah. understand, to be empathetic to the differences in their community so that they can connect with them. And I think that's really important. No, it is, and that, that goes back to that community policing that we talked about. Right. Because, again, it's it's – I don't care if you're the best statistician or the you know the best you know, uh, crime analyst in the world. At the end of the day, none of that matters. Mm-hmm. It might be somebody parking the wrong way, facing the wrong direction next door to this lady's house. That's our biggest problem. Yeah, it, it's not this, that, or the other, and you're not going to know until you talk to that lady. So it's those are those programs of the bicycle programs, the foot patrols, the going back to the old school way of doing things. Some sometimes you know, <laughs> old school is the best yeah. way. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We, we shouldn't make judgments. We haven't walked in people's shoes, so right. that's where we need to be empathetic, ask questions, be there, connect, because. We don't know why people make certain decisions or why they got scared and pulled a knife on this person or whatever that is. We haven't walked in their shoes, and that's where we have to be empathetic. Yep. And that goes back to adequate resources, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's police manpower. I mean, you, you look at the larger cities like Dallas. That I mean, you come on the streets, you're holding 150, 200 calls. Yeah. And some of those calls take three or four days to answer. Yeah, and they it's, do. It's, it, they take three or four days to answer. And uh, even in Richardson, I remember working, you know, deep nights or evenings. I've worked evenings from 2 to t- two. 2 p.m. to 10 p.m., we'd come on at 2 o'clock, calls be holding, especially the deep nights. I mean, it's, when we came on at, at 6 p.m., it was, you know, that, that we had a split shift, and it was running calls all the way up and through until it's like 2 o'clock and it slows down, and then your car burglars and your, 
your other burglars come out and you got to be out in your neighborhoods, but it would just call to call to call and you can only be so effective, you know? Mm-hmm. So right. there are, there are agencies and I know at my agency, the agencies that I work with for some other water districts that I manage, we, we, we track those, those officer calls and we're looking at, you know, what, what the ratio is and what the percentage is on their self-initiated activity. And, you know, the good thing is, is, you know, most of these suburban agencies, 35 to 45% of the time, the officers patrolling their neighborhoods are generating activity self-initiated, mm-hmm. not dispatch calls. Mm-hmm. So that means over almost, almost half the time of their shift, they get to drive around and look for stuff, yeah. talk to people and do that. And so, uh, you know, keeping those That's ratios great. is yeah. important. And, and having leaders that understand that, yeah. that, that balance, that, that have to bring those hard numbers to the council yeah. and says, look, yeah. I, I need $500,000 <laughs> for five more officers this yeah. year because – our ratios are askew. We, we've got a, we've got a man, you know, or the, the, the number of officers to, you know, civilian population has just become imbalanced too much. But staying on top of that and, and having support from the taxpayers with, you know, taxes, taxes, taxes. But that's unfortunately the general fund is what funds all your public safety, mm-hmm. your police and fire. And in most cities and suburbs, 50 percent of the general fund is your public safety, just police and fire. That eats up half of it. Wow. Well, I, I think this has been such a great conversation yes. about police officers and mental health and the struggles, not only the the community and how they have mental health issues and how we're responding to those, but also the mental health issues with police officers. It's just so impactful. And the things that they see and do every day and having to try to keep good mental health because it does change their particular productivity it does change safety protocols and if they're not in a good place those things aren't followed it's dangerous for them it's dangerous for the community and so this is such a great talk i think yeah thank you so much greg for being a guest on our show i know that your your testimony and your story is going to change lives so we're thankful for that well i hope so and you know just to, to end on this you know for those of you that are out there i would just urge the public to you know Engage yourself. Get in, get involved with something, whether it's Special Olympics Texas, whether it's the Prelude Clubhouse in Plano. Yeah. There's a lot of things that I donate to. You know, they're working with Love and War on a big country concert coming up. There's a lot of things planned. There's there's a lot of other organizations out there that, that help sustain these individuals when they're not in a time of need to help keep them where they need to be and take exactly. them from place to place. And so there's a lot of things out there, and I think the more we can get the public to find a way to, to give back, you know, we can't – expect everything to come from our legislators and in in our our government but uh you know if they've got money to give look at those type of associations and do be that. part of your community yeah exactly dial in thank you ladies I thank enjoyed you it very thank much. you so much if you or anyone you know is struggling with mental health issues please reach out to talk to someone you trust get connected to a mental health professional who can help you find ways to cope and ultimately feel better. If you are having suicidal or self-harm thoughts or thoughts of hurting another person, please go to the nearest ER, call 911, or contact the National Suicide Hotline at 988. Thank you for tuning in to Mental Perk. We hope our talk today highlighted real people working through real issues based on mental health. Our goal at Mental Perk is to make sure every one of you knows you're worthy. We're in this together.